You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everyone. Happy November. I hope everyone is still nibbling on their candies from Halloween. Mm, 100% uh, I am, yes. We're going to jump in here with a story for you. Uh, I'm starting things off. The year is 1818, and a woman named Nancy has headed over to her neighbor's place in southern Indiana. She's only lived there in Pigeon Mm -hmm. Creek Settlement for two years, having moved from out east uh, in Kentucky, which I guess is, you know, further east. A lot of new new people. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. East? Not, not east right. coast, but, you know, from the east. Uh, a lot of new people had just moved into the area around then because Indiana became a state in 1816. And uh, Nancy was headed over to the neighbors because yeah. everyone there was sick. And in a pioneer area, this, uh, you know, people often banded together to help each other out. But soon after helping the neighbors, uh, she noticed that she, too, guess. was not feeling Got well. Sick. Uh-oh. Yeah. Really? Some of us can relate to that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably uh, can't relate to this, yeah. though. It started with trembling. Uh-oh. Her hands started to shake. What? Perhaps her jaw started to shake as well. Along with this came a... Gro- Sounds uncomfortable. A, a, yeah, a growing pain in the stomach, accompanied by an insatiable thirst for water. Uh-oh. Next came the vomiting. And as the sickness like this. progressed, she likely became constipated lost all appetite, became weak, and within a week or less was unable to walk. This sickness what? was not done with her, though. Mm. Eventually, she lost all muscle control, slipped into a coma, and passed away. That is very unpleasant. Very unpleasant. These symptoms were, we're supposed to do nice things after our, we already had our Halloween. Episode, I know. Right? I like, don't know if you got I'm, that notice. I, I, sorry, this is not the Halloween episode. Um, turns out that these symptoms uh, were not unusual or unfamiliar to the people of Pigeon Creek settlement. Indeed, she was buried next to her neighbor who had died of the same cause just uh, one week previous. Now, Nancy's story is not. It took a week for her. To uh, go through all of that? Uh, well, it kind of depends. And, and there's not really great information. I will say Nancy's story is not unique, though most listeners will have never even heard of it. Uh, the disease she died from uh, is sometimes called the trembles. And it was once the leading cause of death of people in the Midwest uh, in the U.S. Death came within two to ten days from the onset of symptoms. Wow. So pretty quick. Whoa. I saw some estimates that half the population of new settlements around this time period, often died from this mysterious illness that could strike any time between spring and fall, but never in the winter. Uh, We don't have exact numbers on how many people died from the trembles, uh, but they were in the many thousands of people. Wow. I've never heard of this. I know. Well, you maybe have. I'm, the I'm, symptoms are kind of I'm obfuscating triggering a something. little bit. We'll get to this. Okay, wait. Um, I, I have a couple ideas about the kind of thing it could be. 
Do you want okay. me to? Do you want me to? Uh, sure. What? Mm. Okay. Okay. What, so you you are you know if, if listeners don't know you know. Um, Victoria is studying to be a nurse right now. So, you know, the medical gears are turning okay. right now, I'm sure. So if it's not happening in the winter, it could be some kind of like tick-borne illness, perhaps. Okay. okay. Or the other way Ooh. my mind was going was like, um, you know, sometimes they're uh, poisonous plants. And if like cows eat them, then you drink the milk okay. and, and it could be something, some kind of environmental toxin. Interesting, interesting. Mm. Well, sit back and relax and we'll find yeah. out. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, y- y- your gears are turning there. This was a mystery that was, a lot of people were trying to figure out what was going on. And it was truly terrifying. Uh, the general cause actually wasn't discovered until about 12 years after this person, Nancy, died. Uh, and we didn't determine the exact cause until nearly 100 years after that in 1928. Whoa. Mm. Uh, now we know how to how to prevent how to prevent it long before then but the the exact cause we hadn't nailed down Um, the names of many people who died from the trembles are forgotten and the only reason nancy's story has endured for over 200 years is that her son abraham survived and went on to become the 16th president of the united states oh Lincoln so decided okay. to kind of yeah this was Lincoln's mom died from this disease so she's one of the most famous people oh, to have died okay. from it um, although there, you know she was not the first and there were thousands of others but you know her story was probably pretty right. typical so what was going on uh, we didn't know a lot about disease back then indeed uh, one popular and naturally unhelpful treatment for the trembles was bloodletting mm. uh, just of course let the person bleed a whole bunch so uh, people just hoped you could kind of bleed it's the blood. It's miasma, blab- Kirk. Yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> they just hoped you could bleed the bl- bad blood out of you. Ironically, they were perhaps a little bit right in that there was something that needed to get out of the body, um, but it bloodletting wasn't going to help. Uh, this was not a disease caused by bacteria, a virus, or even fungus. The thousands of people who died were, in fact, poisoned. Ah. And, uh, what? Victor- you know, Victoria's barking up the right tree here. So a key point in the story is that the people dying were settlers who were in a new, unfamiliar part of the continent. Um, people were mostly dying in Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee. Uh, the Kentucky legislature, interestingly, put up a $600 reward if someone could find a cause or a cure. Uh, incidentally, I was kind of curious. I saw that figure and I'm like, what, what would that equate to in today's money? Uh, $15,000. Which, come on, so Kentucky. Kentucky, do better. People are dying. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All their, imagine if, like, if I like mean, yes, people, but half Kentucky the population of your state was dying and the legislature is like... Much. Harsh. The Kentucky Derby. They're known for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, they're known for things. I'm, I'm sorry, Kentucky. I mean, a lot of the people, it's not necessarily a very wealthy You're place. digging a hole. Like, there's keep going, a lot yeah. of... Yeah, you're really uh, yeah, alienating yeah, yeah. our Kentucky listeners right now. I, if you're from Kentucky, okay, write in I'm, and tell Rachel like why Kentucky. she's wrong. Um, <laughs> but no, but to, to to your point, I mean, it'd be like if you know half the population of the state was dying, and they're like, "This is a serious problem." What do you think, you guys? Fifteen thousand dollars—that's enough to throw at it? Like, yeah, seems a little mm-hmm. little little yeah. lean, little lean. Uh, but um, yeah, we do have a hero of our story, uh, though perhaps or I should say a heroine. Uh, Dr. Anna Hobbs, Woo-hoo! 
much like our Victoria, was uh, very interested in, you know, unlocking the secret to this and was uh, um, a doctor, uh, Dr. Anna Hobbs. She wanted to figure out what was going on. Uh, she observed that it was a seasonal illness, like I mentioned, and that it affected not only humans, but farm animals as well. Mm. And the most likely farm animals to be affected were cattle. And while she was out observing cattle, uh, Anna ran into a Shawnee woman. And the Shawnee had lived in the northeastern U.S. in the 17th century, but were progressively being pushed further and further west as the U.S. expanded. And Anna befriended this woman, um, and they discussed this sickness that Anna was trying to research. And Anna said she wondered if cows might be eating something to make them sick. Uh, but the Shawnee woman already knew the answer. Uh, the cows were eating white snake root. Uh, it was apparently... Common knowledge amongst her people uh, that the plant was poisonous and would cause both animals and humans to get very sick. Uh, Anna then, uh, armed with this knowledge, conducted experiments to verify this new information and that she was given. And she did, in fact, then confirm uh, through experimentations that white snake root was, in fact, the source of the disease. So Anna sounded the alarm, urging farmers to pull, pull the plant from their fields and dig it up and not let their cows eat it. Uh, now, sadly, we don't know the name of the Shawnee woman. It's been lost to time. And we almost didn't know about Anna uh, because she wasn't given credit for her discovery by the men of the of the time. What? Way to go, You shocked men. me. Yep. Shocking. Sounds... Shocking. I know, right? But we do know now who, who she was, which is awesome. So in the, the arc of time, we're, we're, it's coming back. Now, I did say I was obfuscating Yay. a little bit. We do now know this disease by a different name. We don't generally call it the trembles, at least in humans. So like if animals were to get this, we Mm -hmm. would still call it the trembles. Uh, But the way that most humans get it is exactly what Victoria was talking about. If we were to drink milk from those cows or interestingly, even eat meat from those cows, uh, humans can get sick and die. And so we call it milk sickness. Um, Because again, humans were not eating the white snake root. Uh, They were getting a secondary poisoning, which is just wild and part That's of what made kind of hard to figure out is like milk is safe we drink milk what's the problem um and it's not all milk but you know it was just the ones from these uh particular cows that had eaten this plant so while we have known that white snake root causes milk sickness for some time we actually and actually were able to prevent it because you just say hey don't eat that plant the actual toxin mm-hmm. uh called uh trematol was not identified and isolated for another 100 years until about 1929 is when scientists were actually able to like wow. isolate that one uh, compound. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's when chemistry so, was starting to get good. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That, that had, that, that's mostly <laughs> yep. why, why it was then. Uh, so white snake root uh, is in the aster family. It's a tall flowering plant that grows in the woods. I mean, we see it around here where we live. I don't think I have any yeah. in my yard, I, but oh, I, I, do. I, I definitely <laughs> see it frequently. Yeah, you got in your yard. There you go. So it's I everywhere. Don't eat it, it in by the, the way. Don't eat that. <laughs> it is oh, poisonous. Wasn't gone. Um, it's generally not a problem today as we, we don't let cows eat snake root. Um, but also, interestingly, because we pool the milk of many cows together. If you're taking milk like on a small farm from just one cow, because you have your one cow, and that one cow has that poison in the system, you're, you know, you're going to get a healthy dose of that. But I looked this up to be sure one gallon of milk contains milk from thousands of cows mixed together. It, I can't give an exact what? number because it depends on what dairy you get your milk from. Um, if you're getting milk from one of these big, you know, producers, 
each farm might have hundreds of cows, maybe even thousands of cows. They collect all that milk. It goes to a big dairy that all gets mixed together into a huge vat and, you know, for, for um, and is checked for quality and things like that. So by the time that's all churned together and mixed together and everything, when you buy a gallon of milk, that is milk from like thousands of cows in just that one gallon all mixed together. So even if one huh. cow happened to have eaten uh, white snake root, the toxin would be diluted to a completely safe level and, and would not harm you at all because it would be, you know, one thousandth of the, the dose you would need to get sick or one ten thousandth of the dose needed to get right. sick and it's, nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, so while uh, white Fair. snake root is not an uncommon plant in the woods, I know we do see it from time to time if you're interested and you are probably kind of in the eastern half of the U.S., um, look up what it looks like and possibly uh, next, uh, you know, spring when the plants all start It'll coming up or Facebook. summer. It'll be around. Yeah, we'll, we'll post a picture of it. But I mean, if you want to look in it our up, Instagram when you're out hiking, uh, check it out because it's uh, it is a cool plant. But a little bit of advice. You probably shouldn't eat it. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Huh. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a little break. And uh, when we come back, we will hear from Rachel. Welcome back, everyone. Usually, um, usually after our spooky Halloween and after doing a month of uh, scary or like mythical or whatever Uh type topics, (laughs) uh, I try to do something kind of nice or cute to kind of soften and not uh, sort of make up for it. Can I make a prediction? I'm. Yeah. You didn't do that. I'm not doing that. Oh, good. Are both both of our stories about people dying this week? Yeah, people have died in my story. Um, Here we go. Okay. (laughs) um, Yeah. Uh, So we've... I'm actually kind of going around kind of what you were doing a little bit, Kirk. I'm obfuscating. Um, And I'm going back to a topic we've actually talked about before. And hilarious enough, you referenced this uh, before we started recording. <laughs> oh, really? Um, okay. We've talked about quicksand before. <laughs> we yeah. certainly have. Um, We've covered that topic. Several times. Uh, and we talked about like the sand dunes that are closer to our communal thought of what and understanding what quicksand is. Okay. Um, but we've not really talked about a version of something that acts like quicksand. Uh, and Laura from the Love of Nature podcast actually did kind of talk about uh, this um, as well as the dangers of uh, quicksand itself. Um, okay. But we didn't really talk about what makes the Alaskan mudflats so dangerous. Interesting. So, oh, okay. So I'm going to preface this with the fact, and I've already talked said this, um, people do die watching this and not paying attention to timing um, or getting stuck uh, and not listening to locals or reading signs that are there sure. for your safety. Please read signs. They are there for <laughs> a reason. Um, and we've talked a during our quicksand episodes, we've talked about uh, glacial silt and what makes it um, so dangerous. But that's not 
just what makes the Alaskan mudflats so dangerous. So glacial silt okay. is really hard and it's just so thin and ready to like suck people down because there it's, it's kind very, of in that amorphous, very, very fine not solid right? and liquid. Exactly. It's super fine. So it allows you to like, it allow it, it, it really likes to suck things down. The more you struggle, the more further down you go. But that's not really what is, the issue here so if you are a tourist up in alaska and um which truly i wish um what if you decide to go for a walk um across the alaskan mudflats to fire island and cook inlet but you don't really listen or pay attention to the tides First mistake. Can you remind us? If you get stuck in the glacial silt. Can you remind us where in Alaska yeah. this is? The big state. Um, so I this hear. is outside of Anchorage. Okay. It <laughs> it is a really big state. So this is out um, in the Cook Inlet. This is actually up um, in the Turnigan Arm uh, near Anchorage. Near Anchorage. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you're not paying attention to the tides, that's your first mistake. If you get stuck on your way back, um, in the glacial silt and you're trying to get out, but you don't necessarily, uh, get help in time or, um, people aren't able to help get you out. And unfortunately this has happened. Um, the tide will come in. And it's not just a normal tide. This is a bore tide. Oh, geez. And a bore tide comes in so fast that people have literally watched others just drown because they've been stuck and they can't get out. So on that happy note, I want to talk about bore tides. No, oh, that's right. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Pretty tricky. All right. uh, a little bit. See, little tricky. Uh, so a little background, a tide, just in general. I'm, I assume that everybody knows what a tide is, but just to give everyone the same base. Um, according to Merriam-Webster, oh, a tide hot. is the alternate <coughs> rising and falling of the surface of the ocean and of water bodies connected with the ocean that occurs usually twice a day and is the result of differing gravitational forces exerted at different parts of the earth by either the moon or the sun. Good job. So thank you, Miriam Webster. Thank you. A bore tide does follow this, but it has much more force and is actually more rare. Um, this only occurs uh, where a river empties into an ocean. Uh, it has to happen where um, the river uh, has to be narrow or like going into a bay. Um, so it, ends up in an estuary zone and actually is really cool for the wildlife, but I'll touch on that in a minute. Sure, sure. Um, what happens is the tide, when the tide comes in, um, it goes against the current of the river. Yep. Um, and it either rapidly fills or it rapidly empties the river. And because of this, it's actually a lot less predictable than a normal tide. Um, and a lot of people do try to, to witness there are people who actually surf oh, man. a bore wow. tide 
<laughs> wow, yeah, I suppose, yeah. It's like a big wave kind of coming in, right? It's a huge hmm. wave. Um, you can witness them in many places. The Amazon River actually has a boar tide. Um, Alaska, like I talked about in the Turnigan Arm by Cook Inlet. Uh, there's several. There's a lot of rivers in Europe, uh, which kind of blew my mind. Um, and there's a pretty famous one in China as well. That is one of the largest. So I think a, I've seen a boar tide. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, a boar tide is where the tidal range is large. So like between low tide and high tide, um, at in a, a shallow and narrow river that empties out into a wide bay. If there is a large tidal range between low and high tide, you can get a boar tide. And okay. the range can be anywhere like 20 feet or six meters. Wow. Wow. I've been. So the <laughs> difference between when the tide is out and when the tide is in is about 20 feet. Wow. Or it can be. Now, I've been to the Bay of Fundy in eastern As have I, Canada. Yeah. And that has, I think, the highest tidal range mm -hmm. in the world. It's a lot of feet. I don't remember exactly how many, but I, I don't mm -hmm. know if there's a boar tide there. They do have a reversing waterfall. I think they do get a boar tide. Okay. Now, a boar tide itself uh, can move in anywhere from 6 miles per hour to 24 miles per hour. So it is not <sighs> like a... a a normal tide kind of comes in over maybe like an hour or so. This comes in with force. And actually you can hear uh, the tide when it's coming in because it actually makes a roaring sound because of the rush of water that's coming into this narrow inlet. Um, and the wave itself can be up to 30 feet or nine meters high going up Whoa. the river until wow. it's reversing oh, the current man. of the river. Um, and it raises the level of the river. And obviously, like I said earlier, it depends on the difference between low and high tides in the area itself, as well as like when in the moon cycle. So like um, a new moon is actually more likely it, when we are in a new moon cycle, you're more likely to have a boar tide, like a really strong boar tide than at like a quarter huh. moon. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. The um Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the Bay of Fundy. Uh, when I, I was there just for a short period of time, we went kayaking. I didn't get to stand there and kind of watch the tidal bore coming in, but we actually were kayaking as it was going out. Uh, and it was a surreal mm -hmm. experience because we launched right from the shore and went kayaking kind of out into the bay and around the corner. And then they picked us up like, I don't know, an hour later or something and drove back into town. And from where we were standing... Where we had launched from, the water, I don't. It was like 400, 500 mm -hmm. feet away or something. And there's just like <laughs> boats laying, like you know, on the on the ground, just like on dry ground. And you're like, huh? Yeah, that looks different. But it would have been very cool to see it. We didn't actually get the, the timing wise didn't work out to see it coming back in. But you'd all of a sudden just as you came in and out of town, you're like, mm -hmm. what is going on here? It was pretty wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, people will surf it for miles because they'll oh, just wow. take huh. and be on the same wave going yeah. up the river, which is crazy. And like animals use this That's too. Like belugas will come up and when the water is super, um, when the water is super deep, they'll go and because it stuns fish, 
and a bunch of other yeah. like animals that are living in the water. So it's a great time for uh, predators to come and like eat the stunned fish or the knocked out fish or whatever might have been hit by the tidal bore itself, huh. you know? There was some so it's utilized by not just humans, which is cool. There was some video footage online, I remember, of, of a tidal bore coming in. It was one of these really famous locations. It may have been the one in China. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was... I think it was, vid- yeah. Video footage of that made the rounds. I think it was after the Sumatran um, tsunami. And people were saying, oh, this is, this mm-hmm. is footage of the tsunami wave come in because it actually looks more like what no. I think what I think we assume a tsunami looks like but it's which like the big wave as opposed to tsunami is more like just a big storm surge that kind of you know blows in um, oh yeah and but everyone's like oh this is this amazing footage of this of this uh tidal wave and you're like no it's a tidal bore <laughs> it's like that's why everyone was mm-hmm. just standing there filming it because everyone knew it was going to happen you know <laughs> yeah but it's pretty yeah. it's, pr- it's pretty neat yeah so that's what I have for you all today. Uh, I just wanted to talk about tidal bores uh, and their impact um, as well. well thank you. They're Your crazy. topic like, wasn't They don't at happen all. everywhere. You have to have the right <laughs> conditions. And so honestly, bad. that is what makes the Alaskan mudflats so dangerous is having that bore come in because uh, it comes in uh, yeah. really quickly, um, which makes it so dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. Hey, we're back. Uh, If you ever doubted that there are still mysteries in nature, you haven't been listening to our show. But uh, (laughs) fair. Yeah. Today's topic would convince you. I'm going to talk about a natural mystery that is still out there. This is about an animal that has been known to science since 1887. It is. Oh, so this animal has been known to science since 1887. It's not difficult to find or to collect, but we don't know some of the most basic things about it, including what it looks like. (laughs) <laughs> what? Oh, oh, that we was we collect now. I'm oh, I'm misdirecting. We a don't know what it here. looks like. I'm misdirecting a little bit. Here. I know. I'm I'm fat. You, you got I'm, you got me. I'm fascinated. Okay. I I'm hooked. So we know what this animal looks like as a larva. Okay. All right. All right. But we okay. don't know what it looks like, where it lives, or how it lives exactly as an adult. That's kind of the opposite of what I would expect, but okay. Yeah. So it's like the opposite right. of the eel story. I would just think of the eels, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So this animal was first huh. collected in the North Sea in 1887 by a German naturalist named Christian Andreas Victor Hansen. Um, and then a couple of years later, another, a Danish scientist um, named Hans Jakob Hansen uh, named it, and he called it a... Why Nopleus? Now, I had to learn a lot of crustacean-related vocabulary. This is a crustacean. That's right. a name. Yeah, Nopleus is like a, a larval oh, stage of a crustacean. Okay. So we called it the oh. Y. The, the Y was sort of like the X, you know, mystery letter. So we now know this group of crustaceans as Phacetotecta, or they're also called enigmatic Y larvae. Um, so... There appear to be many different species of them, and they are quite common in oceans all over the world. 
All right. But mm-hmm. something before I kind of go more into this, something that it's important to know about crustaceans is that they can have a lot of different immature stages before they reach adulthood. Uh, so it's also it's pretty common in marine species, including crustaceans, to have larvae and adults that have very different lifestyles. So, for example, yeah, for example, like barnacles, which are also crustaceans, have an adult. Oh, they look completely. Yeah, they have an adult form. Like barnacles are those little crusty rock-like things that are stuck to the bottoms of ships and whales and uh, you know pure pure pilings in the ocean. But Mm -hmm. when they mate and lay eggs, the eggs hatch into free-swimming larvae that move around and eat, and then eventually they pick a spot to settle down and turn into adults. Mm-hmm. At any rate, the Facetotecta do, they do look a little bit like a small shrimp wearing a helmet. They're very small. They're like a few tenths of a millimeter <laughs> in size, and they have these kind of... It's like um, it's almost like a Star Wars-y looking helmet. It's, it's sort of long and um, teardrop-shaped. And it's faceted. Oh, I, I know exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it's sort of faceted also, which is actually partly how they get their name. Because facetotecta is from uh, from Greek uh, faceted larva, I think it was. Faceted. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And there are at least 11 species, but there are probably more. And we know them just from these various stages of like instars of their larva, larval growth. So similar to some gotcha. insects, they have like five instars, I believe. They just kind of get a little bigger each time, right? Yeah, getting a little bigger. Right. Um, so you might think if it's not so hard to find these larvae, why not just keep them in a tank and see what they grow into? As a matter of fact, I was just <laughs> ah. going to ask, Victoria, why don't we put them in a tank and see what they grow into? Well, are they like impossible to raise? Yeah, not so easy. <laughs> Um, biologists have had only limited success with growing these animals in a lab. Uh, they're able to get them to grow through those typical five instars of crustacean larvae, which are okay. called the nauplius, right? And then to one mm-hmm. stage after that, which is kind of like a, I don't, I don't even know if it's still a larva, but it's not a juvenile and not an adult. It's, it's called a cyprid. Uh, but then they die. Hmm. Uh, so, Great. you know, through analysis of their body plan and their details and also some DNA analysis, biologists have been able to place them pretty firmly within a particular group of crustaceans, which is called the uh, Thecostraca, which is, I think, an, uh, a class that includes barnacles as well. Okay. okay. But in 2008, there was a bit of a breakthrough. Um, there was a yeah. Ooh, we love breakthroughs. There was a team of Danish and Japanese scientists, and they were actually able to take some Y larvae from one of these species, and then they used okay. some crustacean growth hormones on it. <laughs> Clever. Okay. Yeah. And it, <clears throat> it shed its shell and transformed into a new juvenile form, which they called an Ipsigon. Y-P-S-I-G-O-N. <laughs> so... Gonos is larva okay. in Greek and Ypsilon's the letter Y in Greek. So it was like being kind of clever there, I think. But we're still not at adult like stage, it. right? Still not at adult stage, but no. the juvenile. Oh. The juvenile, here's the description from the paper. I quote. Okay, I'm listening. I'm ready. Slug-like, 
unsegmented and lacks both limbs and almost all other traits normally characterizing arthropods, but it is capable of what? a vigorous peristaltic motion. Unquote. Oh. Ew, I, ew, I don't like the term peristaltic <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. That, for, for those who don't know, uh, that is the... Uh, Gross. It's, it's the motion that moves That's everything through your bowels. It's also the motion that, that moves things up when you vomit. Yep. So um, reverse oh. peristalsis is a very nice way of saying puking. Yeah. So this, this animal doesn't, as it said, doesn't have too many of the characteristics of arthropods or other crustaceans. No. What does it sound like? No. Though? Sounds like a sea slug. What? It does sound like a sea slug. Um, ah. I thought you for for a minute you I thought you were gonna ask it when you said what does it sound like I thought you meant um, it's like bah, 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 bah. <laughs> noise does it make noise <laughs> not the the noise that hey. it made hey not hey how y'all doing like, I'm I, a, uh, I'm an arthropod I don't look like an arthropod <laughs> but uh, I am one yeah. no I was kind also of a thinking pirate voice like, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that it had like a like you were asking us to make the sound of the parasol. She was she was movement. not. No, no, please don't. I think Thank it probably goodness. has a job of the hut no. voice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the best guess is actually that facetotectins are probably internal parasites of some other marine species. Oh, interesting. Wild. But we do not know what. We have no, we <laughs> don't know. Which would explain why we never see yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> we got to gut right. a whole bunch of species, apparently. Mm-hmm. But then how would you know which larva it belongs to? You don't. Unless right. you do some DNA, DNA analysis, testing. right? Yeah. Um, and in fact, and hope that it has this, uh, this Ipsagon juvenile stage, this slug like thing. Shows a lot of similarities to the first parasitic stage of another animal that's in the same class of crustaceans um, okay. and that are parasites hmm. of other crustaceans like crabs and lobsters. So, you know, we don't know if these Y okay. larvae, uh, the facetotectins, parasitize crabs specifically, but it seems now likely that their lifestyle is probably fairly similar. Mm-hmm. But wow. they tested but those we also haven't. they're not the same, right? Tested what? It's not the same? Like, they've tested the one, the, they've tested the juvenile and the um, larval stage of this creature with the similar right. No, it's not the same. The, the lifestyle of, the life not. cycle of that okay. other parasite is pretty well known. The crab parasite. But we still don't okay, have cool. an adult version of this either to know what the sort of final form is. No, we like. don't. That's it's wild. Yeah. I love a good mystery. Crazy. So story to be continued, perhaps. Um, yeah, the paper uh, that I looked at for this is induced, metam- <laughs> induced metamorphosis in crustacean Y larvae towards a solution to a 100-year-old riddle, um, which was published in BMC Biology in 2008. And also the Atlas, awesome. of, Atlas of Crustacean Larvae was helpful as well. Awesome. Thanks, Victoria. Thank you. You're welcome. That's crazy. Uh, I, I'm the last one to go this time, right? So I get to say, <laughs> yeah, that's all we go. have. And say it. We'll see you next time. Yeah. See you next time. Thanks, everyone, Thanks. for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.